0: a podcast that untangles the science of sex and pleasure and now with this week's episode your host clinical psychologist dr Nazanin moali hey everyone welcome to another episode of sexology podcast i'm your host dr Nazanin moali today we're gonna talk about a topic that can be triggering to some of you guys we're gonna talk about uh, sexual assaults and objectification of women and some men and the reason i chose this topic was because if you're living in united states uh, in past few days ago you might heard the news of allegation against new york's attorney general eric schneiderman in regards to physical abuse and as i was hearing the news i felt this kind of a intense pain in my stomach because I was kind of felt overwhelmed and tired of this narrative that we are hearing that from both part of the political party and all around us about women's and men's are getting sexually assaulted, physically abused, and how hard it is to hear the news and accept it if we're hearing it about someone that we like, we admire and respect. It was much easier for me to say, okay, yeah, Roy Moore, he was a perpetrator. He was praying on teens, and I hope he dies in hell. And I had such a different reaction with the news of Eric Schneiderman and Al Franken. And I felt shame a little bit of ashamed about it because, uh, well, it doesn't matter who Do this act, who abuses. Abusers can be from either side of the party, people that we know and respect and love, and people that are very different than us. So it made me wonder about how this, this, how did we create this system that kind of protects perpetrators and uh, just how, how hard it is for the victim or survivor to talk about her experience and the questions that many people ask them, af- even after they're coming forward. So one of my friend and colleague, uh, Robert Cox, he wrote a piece on Huffington Post about this. And I thought it would be fantastic to have him on the show so we can talk about a how it got here, and how we can do differently that we can change this story. Unfortunately, so common story that many of us have heard. So Robert is a therapist in Kansas city and he specializes in trauma, addiction, and autism. Having been through his own trauma work and addictions, he has spent the past several decades learning to live in the messy and be seen himself while trying to help others do the same. You can hear him on his two podcasts, Mindful Recovery and Listening to Autism. I leave a link to both of those podcasts in the show notes. And also, before we move forward with this episode, I wanted to let you guys know that after listening to this podcast, if you experience a strong emotion, if you feel you got re-triggered, I encourage you to connect with National Sexual Assault Telephone Hotline Their number is 800-656-4673. Okay, number again is 800-656-HOPE. I hope you'll enjoy this podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Sexology Podcast. I am so excited to have my friend and colleague, Mr. Robert Cox, Trauma therapist and a fellow podcaster on the show today. Robert, welcome to our show. Thanks, Naz. Glad to be here. I am so excited you're here. And as we were talking about it before the recording, that it is a timely conversation because unfortunately, continuously, we hear all about these sexual allegations and things that get unfolded in the media around like non-consensual sexual relationships. So I'm very excited to have you here. So, let us start with talking about rape culture. So, what is rape culture in your view, and whom do you think it protects? I'll be
1: honest, I have mixed feelings about the term rape culture, but it certainly fits. I mean, I don't think any of us start out or want to believe that we're creating a culture where rape is acceptable. But one example from my own from my child's life would be that she goes to school and she's got a nice little summer dress. She's pre approved it with me, Dad, right? And, but because it's got spaghetti straps, they ask her to put a shawl over her shoulders because it's distracting. And so I get a text from my daughter, I may be getting suspended. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay, okay, why might you get suspended? Well, because I just chewed out a teacher. I'm like, okay, why did you chew out a teacher? Because they told me I needed to put something on because I was distracting. And I asked them, distracting who? And they said, distracting the boys in school. And I said, why do I have to be responsible for their hormones? And I said, you're fine. <laughs> you <know?
0: laughs>
1: Wonderful fodder. And so I made a call to the principal. And I, you know, we talked about, well, it's distracting the boys. I said, so what you're teaching girls is that it's not OK for them to be sexual or feel like they want to look pretty or Because it might distract the boys. And what you're teaching the boys is that they are not responsible for their own hormonal urges and that you understand if they act on those urges because you don't expect them to be in control.
0: Right. And it reminded me of like so many examples. Well, it was dead silence
1: on the other end of the line. And I said, if that's the message you're okay with sending, and if you're okay with me continuing to push this issue along that message line, then you go ahead and suspend my daughter. Right? She was fine.
0: What was their reaction?
1: Well, that's not what we meant to do. I said, I'm certain it's not what you meant to do. It's just a lack of insight and thought that led you to these rules. It, and that's exactly what it is. I don't think anybody starts out wanting to build a culture where women are constantly being assaulted. But we've existed in this society of male dominance so long that it's been created that way. And unless we challenge those views, like right up front, unless we stand in their face and say, look, what you're really saying when you do this, it will never change. And so, you know, we were talking about Eric Schneiderman in New York and being the attorney general. Look, he's a Democrat. He's a liberal. He's in my, in my field, right? I mean, I, 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 I like the guy's politics. We can hold no quarter for people just because they agree with us politically. That's been the harm in the past. That was the harm with the Bill Clinton thing, right? right. Was, it was because he was in on the women's issues and all these other ways. Too many people were willing to allow him a pass when it came to sexual harassment. And so we gave them a footing when we have the next president who openly says that he grabs women and has no issue with it. And we want to challenge that. Then we hear from his political, you know, friends. Well, what about Bill? Right. Right. So we cannot allow any room for this anymore. It's got to stop entirely, regardless of whether or not you agree with me. It is not okay. You know that's that's the issue I see. We've got a culture now that it's gotten so bad that you know um, and I know we're going to get into this in a minute, but we've created a culture where women have to defend themselves when they say they've been raped. It's starting. It's starting to change even in local areas, which which is really what I see as hopeful. An example would be in Ray County, Missouri. The Ray County prosecutor just got a guy to plead out to sexual assault. And he's actually going to do several years in prison because he was with, I can't remember if his wife or longtime live-in girlfriend or what the situation was. But at some point, what started consensually became a no. And he refused to accept that. And he choked her out and finished. And in the past, that would have been a case that was almost unprosecutable because they were in a committed relationship. But in a rural county in Missouri, the prosecutor got this man to plead. And so things are changing.
0: Right. And I'm so glad for that. And as you were talking about, it is painful when you witness that someone that you respect, someone that you said, you know, I share the same view with you, that like someone that I I think it belongs to my political party does something that's an appropriate part of me. And I can talk about myself that part of me wonder, okay, what are some other evidence out there? Like that's my instinct saying that with Bill Clinton, maybe, you know, maybe they're not telling the truth in the moment. Obviously we know better that just to believe the women and all of this thing, and anyone can do like such a behavior.
1: I call it the Bill Cosby effect, right? Because this was everybody's dad, right? right? This was the TV dad that was awesome and funny and friendly, and we all wanted to know him. And then we find out these horrible things that he's been doing. And the first place our mind goes is, well, maybe they're just in it for the money, or maybe they're just, or maybe, 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 and we start looking for reasons. It's very, very related to that, I think that 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 safety brain that we have that goes on from childhood, right? We assume when we're children that our parents must be perfect. So anything that doesn't match that view of, of parent, and we try and negotiate it away, right? And so we do this. We we want our friends to be stable and perfect because they feel safer that way. I, I don't want the cognitive dissonance that gets created by knowing fundamentally you're a good person, but you did this horrible thing, right? And right. It, that's the gray area. And we become a society that really doesn't like gray area. I chose this guy. I don't want to talk about why. You're stupid. Get away from me, right? right? And And I think that only feeds into this. And that's why I say we cannot allow any quarter for individuals who do these things, whether or not they're in our corner, you know, even, even if it was my own son who did something like this, you know, I would not rescue him from that, from those consequences. I love you. I'll be there for you. I'll try and help you get help, but I won't save you from your actions.
0: And that's such an important kind of point that you mentioned, because then my mind goes to, okay, these are the people that I don't know personally, and I have this gut reaction. And I can only imagine that would get magnified if that's someone talking about my father or my son or my brother, because you said you want to protect them. And it's so fantastic that you're acknowledging that, you know, someone that's close to me or they are possibly have flaws. And we don't need to kind of re-victimize someone else in the cost of protecting our relatives.
1: I think it's, you know, we've spent a lot of decades developing this facade, this image that we aren't really broken and buying into that myth. And the minute we start to accept that everyone is broken and that you can be a good person and still have broken spaces, we're going to be able to move past this. But in this entrenchment, of this ideology we're really going to have to start putting in touch people in touch with the pain that this is causing others in order to make that change right we've been candy coating the consequences for too long right well if you hadn't been drunk this would have happened if you hadn't been in the dark alley this wouldn't happen and of course if someone goes to a party and they get wasted they've made a bad decision but they don't deserve to be raped out of that bad decision. Nobody does.
0: It, when you were talking about, I was thinking about the content you wrote in Huffington Post, which I was I was thinking, I think it's fantastic and I'll definitely leave a link to that article. You were talking about, we don't ask those questions in murder cases. Asking, oh, what were you doing out at no, 3 a.m.? So right. Yeah, and it's so why is it different now?
1: Why were you walking around the alleyway counting your money? Of course you deserve to be beaten and robbed. Right. Right. Yes, walking through a dark alley and counting your money and your is a really bad idea. It's a bad decision. You don't deserve to be beaten and robbed for that decision. You know.
0: Right. Right. And again, just because it's sexuality and sex and this framework that we have, then people like go they immediately at times go to that place that where uh, what was she doing? What was she wearing? Was she drunk? And it's just so unfortunate that it's so ingrained in our mind, and I hear it even from my colleagues on when I when we do case consultation and talking about like you know a woman being assaulted and I even hear those questions why she was at the guy's house so you're right maybe maybe it was a good decision, maybe it wasn't, but it doesn't make it the less of a pain and we don't need to invalidate people of their experiences
1: and I think too much of this comes out of centuries of this. Judeo-Christian, and not exclusively Judeo-Christian, because there are many religions, that this view of women as property is less than, right? And as a Christian, I find that incredibly offensive. As a Christian, I find it offensive when I have a client come to me and say that her husband was brutalizing her, and when she went to church, her pastor told her her job was to be submissive. That offends me, Right. But until we have enough people who are Christian, who are Islamic, who are who want to stand up and say this is offensive, this is not at all what our scripture says, then we're not going to change that.
0: You're right. It's not an issue only with Judaism or Christianity. I grew up as, as you know, and our listeners know, in Iran, and it was a, at the time of my growing up, it was Islamic country, and I was bombarded by these messages that. As you were talking about your daughter and her, her school reaction, I remember in one of our religious study classes, which was mandatory, they were, talking about that, that they were talking about mandatory hijab. Again, there's nothing wrong with hijab if you choose to do that, but they were talking about how there's something, there's this shine in your hair. And again, this lady was very extreme that kind of caused men to get aroused and they cannot control their desire. And it's just, it was shocking to me that, A, how reductionistic and degrading is the view of men about controlling themselves and how, you know, how this, the whole thing seemed like a fraud to me. So you're right. I think it's all around, it's just a stigmatic view that caused many of these issues.
1: And I think, you know, that, that's such a skewed view of, I mean, we as men, we want to believe we're big and strong and and, and you know. In control and in charge. So, why so easily give up that power? Right. Right. Why allow yourself to be reduced to this heap of hormones that you can't control, you know, in the eyes of society or anywhere else? It boggles my mind at times. But it's this, okay, you want to be in charge. So, start with yourself, right? Start with holding men accountable for their behavior.
0: Right. And again, just like we're not animals right so it's interesting yeah. that the way then we go to this pathway the way that people get presented as or okay, we have no control as you said around our desire we feel the desire we act on it which is so not true i'm I working with my clients and also myself you might experience desire many times during the day and it's not if it's not congruent with your values you might not act on them and it's just sometimes that as easy as that
1: yeah i deal with with kids with autism all the time and one of the things I see not infrequently but not terribly frequently is so I don't want to put this out there as a stigma but occasionally you see the young man who has been socially isolated and he's emotionally immature because of that but his body is still telling him what he wants and so he begins to act out in very inappropriate ways Right. And so that is what that training with him is all about. It's about, you know, it's okay to have you can't control your thoughts and emotions. It's impossible. They're in your head. They're in your head in a microsecond and you cannot control that. What you get to choose is your behavior. Right. And so it's 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 basically like what Viktor Frankl said, the existentialist about, you know, between stimulus and response, there is a space. You know, and the more I I breathe, the more I expand that space and the better decision I make about how I want to behave. But when we take this kind of reductionistic view, what we look at and what what we're saying is, well, men don't have the ability to breathe enough to make a decent decision between stimulus and response. That's simply not the case.
0: Right. And again, when we were talking about this, one of the things that comes to my mind is how we can change that. What are some of the things we can do to combat objectification of women and men at times?
1: This is going to be so hard because we are so shut down from this right now. But we have got to a start talking to each other. But to begin talking to each other, we have to accept the idea of brokenness. Right? The idea that we are all broken, that it's okay to be broken, that this is it is intentional that we are broken because only out of brokenness Do we have need? And only out of need do we feel the desire for connection in the first place. And we were meant to be connected, but we won't ever get there if we don't start by accepting that you can be broken and still be a decent person. Now, it doesn't mean I'm not going to hold you accountable for your brokenness, you know? But because what we do is we get in these political debates with each other and immediately feel attacked. And it immediately goes to, well, F you, I'm not broken, right? And you're broken. You're not seeing it, right? And it becomes this very divisive, very quickly, right? It's almost like on a societal level, we've decided to revert into our limbic brain.
0: That is so true. and,
1: And we've lost the ability to have decent conversation without defaulting immediately to that limbic brain. And I believe, it, this is a little off topic, but I believe that a large part of that, a lot of the blame for that goes to politics and media. Because both of these fields have realized that if you trigger someone's limbic region and you make them afraid, they will listen and buy whatever you're selling. Because when you turn someone's limbic region, you turn off the rational part of their brain, the prefrontal cortex. Right. And so if I trigger your fear response, you're not making good decisions anymore. But if I trigger your fear response and then I tell you I can keep you safe, you will follow me to the ends of the earth.
0: That's that is so true. Yes.
1: So politicians do this all the time. Be afraid of Mexicans. Be afraid of Muslims. Be afraid of guns. Be afraid of this. Be afraid of that. Always be afraid. You should always be afraid. Don't even go outside because you need to be afraid. Right. Just vote for us and we'll keep you safe. But the media does the same thing. How many times do you see news, local news in your area talk about the latest murder or gruesome act of brutality, only to find out 15 minutes into the news program that it happened 500 miles away from where you even live? <laughs> right? Sure. <laughs> Why well, do that if it's local news and it's not local? Because that will trigger your fear response. And then you'll sit through the toothpaste commercials. You know, you don't want to change the channel. You want to find out how this happened and where it happened. Because by God, I need to keep my kids safe. And so you will sit through the toothpaste commercials. And they don't care if you actually go out and buy the toothpaste. They get paid for knowing how many people have changed the channel or not.
0: And I love that you talked about the idea of the brokenness. Because I feel you're right. In order to get closer to people... We need to show, be able to show our vulnerability. But if we don't feel safe, you're not going to be willing to show your vulnerability. I remember, like few years ago, I could see, you know, even in political right now, like you know, Republican, they have some good people and some bad people, and like you know, I could even see myself voting for someone that was like in were, were congruent with my values and the goals I had as it like hopes that I had for the society. But you're right. Right now, we're just, we just I have this kind of intense emotion of, OK, I don't want to hear anything related to Republican Party. And that is not healthy. It's because of the fear that you're talking about. It's just like us and them kind of mindset that most of us are living in this era.
1: Well, that and I think on the other side of things. So I want to I want to understand that we must hold people accountable for their behaviors. Right. We must also say that it's OK for you to be broken and we want to get you help. We don't want to just bury you under the prison somewhere, right? Um, We want to address how this is happening. It's horrible. But I also want to look at how the brokenness of the, the victim in these situations keeps us from embracing them. Right. Right? So there's this – when we look at someone who has been sex trafficked or raped repeatedly or or even once or just assaulted – we we want to find the reasons that it happened to them. Right. This is part of it, too. We want to know that, OK, you were walking down a dark alley and you were drunk or you were at a man's house and you got way too high or your clothes were way too promiscuous. Because if I can say that's why that happened to you, then to stay safe, all I have to do is not do that. Right. Right. And so that's the other side of this whole vulnerability issue and, and accepting brokenness is the understanding that you cannot guarantee me 100% safety in the world. That's part of the brokenness, right? Right. But we are so afraid, we are so fear-based that we cannot accept that reality. So we begin looking for reasons that this happened to you, but it won't happen to me. Right. You know, I've, I've heard women say all the time, I don't understand women who won't take the side of the victim. Well, I do. If she's terrified, especially when we have that religion to fall back on, right? If you weren't going against God's will and being promiscuous, this would not happen to you. This will not happen to me because I will not go against God's will and be promiscuous, right? right? I, I think of of I mean, one of the things that started me down this kind of male feminist role you know pathway was early on when I was nineteen years old, a very good friend of mine was raped by her roommate's boyfriend, and she could not go back and tell her parents about that because they were very evangelical Christians. This was in southwest Missouri, you know? And so she went to the dean of women at the university, and the dean of women wanted to lecture her on her manner of dress. This had happened to her when she was in her own home by her roommate's boyfriend, you know? But she repressed it to such an extent, she did not seek legal remedy. She did not talk to anyone else except a very close circle of friends about it. She tried to pretend it didn't exist until she committed suicide.
0: Oh Wow. I am so sorry to hear about your friend. And unfortunately, I got chills when you were talking about this because this is too, unfortunately, such a familiar story. We heard one version of the story or another of the victim kind of like being, re-traumatized whenever she was talking, telling her story and how painful it is.
1: I can't tell you. I mean, I ask, I deal with young girls. I've got, you know, I deal with young girls in my, in my, and I have to ask them, is this, do you want to pursue this? And I'm telling you that 80% of the time, the answer is no. And it's because they know that if they pursue it, they will be raped again by society. And they, they, they can't live through that again. They can't let alone live it through it a hundred more times, right? I mean, we you know as practitioners, it's it's out there as, 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 as someone who specializes in trauma. I know that sometimes it's very important for the client to come in the room and relive those experiences with me so I can be a holding space for that and make it livable, right? But there, there are other times that I, I've seen practitioners push a client to go through that And you can re-traumatize individuals doing that, right? You can deepen the damage literally in their brain. You can deepen the physical damage that is done by pushing them to relive that before they're ready.
0: Right. And it is such a fine balance between what you're talking about, kind of like helping people to work through it because- Certainly there are, and you know better than me, that trauma treatments that require that. And there's a structure for that versus you're telling me like, you know, the story I hear from my client that retelling the story to the different people in legal system and how they're kind of undermined their uh, experience. And I I hear what you said exactly, that my client's telling me that, well, I'm here, I want to improve my, uh, like regain my sexual pleasure And when we're talking about, okay, what did you do? She said, like, you know, this happened and I never talked about it because I was scared of people's reaction. And I just want to put it behind me and how possible it is to do that without like kind of doing some kind of treatment and processing, whether it's advocacy or trauma exposure therapy or all different kind of things that you are familiar with.
1: Right. And defense attorneys don't get paid to consider the psychological well being of the person that is accusing their client, right? So she gets on the stand and they take her there. And every time they take her there, she can feel it happening again in her body. Who wants to sit through that? You know, it takes an amazingly brave person. One of the things we could start doing is supporting women after it happens more effectively, start providing counseling for them.
0: Right. And again, the other part of it, it's also giving them like a space to say, as you said, it's OK to have that experience. Many people, unfortunately, experience that.
1: Oh, yeah. And even you now we've talked about women, but even the case of, of men who were victims as children or even adults, you know, the shame involved in that alone keeps them from coming forward. It's huge, especially with men. I think it's about, you know, I was supposed to be the strong one. I was supposed to be able to protect myself. And I couldn't. And then we get into, as you know, how do I separate the fact that my body reacted with pleasure, right? And there's, and there's a defense attorney in front of me saying, you know, you enjoyed it. And secretly, and secretly in my heart of hearts, I know that my body felt pleasure, right? Even though I wasn't enjoying it at all. So, I mean, this all gets very confused, but I think we don't get anywhere if we don't start talking to one another.
0: Right. And I think it goes in different kind of levels and like interpersonally, like individual level, kind of accepting that it's happening around us all the time. And like, you know, when someone comes forward, we don't necessarily need to drill them and fact check and fact check and fact check. So we can re-traumatize them just because we like so-and-so or just because the perpetrator was our father or brother. I know it's painful, as, as we all can can think about that or imagine that, but it's important to kind of take an active role on kind of like changing this system.
1: I think it's a become a blame and shame culture, mm-hmm. right? And we do not want to blame and shame our friends. It, it's time that we stop with the blame and shame and start saying, why? Why would you do this? Why did this happen? And when we ask why, we have to, all of us accept some accountability for that. Right. Because of Because of the culture that we've existed in. Whether or not we have actively made this culture, we have sat aside and allowed it to continue to exist. So I'm hoping that the Me Too movement is not just a flash in the pan. I'm hoping that it continues.
0: Right, right. And also, I was thinking about what you talked about, safety and brokenness, because I think it's such an important topic, as you were talking about how I think it's so courageous, To do that, coming, showing your vulnerability without knowing that the kind of the other what would be the other person's perspective. And I think that takes lots of courage, but I think that's where the healing can start. I
1: think, and I think we've, we've told the other myth too long that, right. The courageous thing to do is squash it all down and not feel it right. Pretend it doesn't exist. I can tell you the number of men I've come in here. Like I don't cry. I just don't, that's, that's weak. And I'm like, no. The reason you don't cry is because you're terrified of it, and that's weak, right? Right, And so (laughs) it takes a lot of strength to stand there and say, I hurt. You know, I'd a lot rather be angry than hurt. I'd a lot rather be angry than scared. And so anger gets to be the pit bull that stands out in front of all the other emotions I don't want to feel, right? So let's talk about that. I think that's the other reason that in, in society we become angry and we start yelling at each other. Because what's underneath that anger, that political rage, is fear. What if this happens to me? What if it happens to my kids? It couldn't because this, this, and this. They wouldn't do this. They wouldn't do that. Right? Or, you know, how am I going to feed my kids? I'm terrified of that. And you're not making sense to me, so I'm going to rage at you. Right? So I think it's just we've got to get past the fear. As a society, we need to all learn to breathe. And sit with the fear and the hurt for a little while. And then we'll start finding answers.
0: Robert, I love this conversation. I'm passionate about this and you're passionate about this. And we can talk about it like for hours. <laughs> but I wanna, yeah, I want to be mindful of your time though. <laughs> so I know you have a podcast, you have a wonderful blog, you blog for Huffington Post. So if our listeners want to get a hold of you, what would be the best way?
1: Um, just my website, liferecoveryconsulting.org. All of my contact info is there. They can even call me from the website. So now, lately, I'm in session most days, so, but I do try to make a, I have a 24-hour callback policy. So wow. I try to make it within 24 hours. So yeah, that and all of my contractors are told, look, we return calls within 24 hours. That's, it's a business, you know? Right. So.
0: Right. Yeah. I can leave a link to your website and all the wonderful information you have in the show notes. And again, thank you so much for coming on this show and talking about this important topic.
1: Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it,
0: Nas. Have a great day. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Robert. There were so many questions I had for him, but I guess I wait for to hear from you guys that if you wanted a follow-up session, follow-up episode to this one. And what are some of the questions that you have about this topic? Meanwhile, I interviewed two other therapists, psychologists, and sociologists in previous episodes. So one of them is Dr. Lisa Wade. Uh, In episode four, she talked about hookup culture and how it impacts the experience of many younger adults in America. And in episode 52, we had Dr. Nikki Phillips. She talked about Me Too movement and popular media. So if you're interested to learn more about those episodes, I leave a link to the show notes. Also, I love the conversation of talking about all of us being broken, that Dropper talked about it and how important it is to show our vulnerability. Last weekend, I was at this training by Dr. Stephen Hayes. It was an acceptance and commitment therapy, and it was experiential training. So Dr. Hayes mentioned that at the beginning, in order for us to be able to show our vulnerability and connect, he asked us to disclose something that was painful and vulnerable for us to a person next to us. And we all did it and I felt it created such a sacred space and I immediately felt closer with the person next to me. And it just reminded of me that how expressing vulnerability can bring us closer and it seems like that was one of the point that Robert was making. Anyhow, at the end, I wanted to encourage you guys to let me know about the topics that you want to hear in this show. You can tweet them to me or you can send me a message in social media. My handle is at oasis2care or you can record your questions on our website at sexologypodcast.com. I'll talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Sexology Podcast. For more great content, visit www.sexologypodcast.com